Well, good morning, Journey Church. Uh, If we haven't met, let me just take a minute before I dive into our text to introduce myself. My name is Tyler. Uh, I am the new, like, one and a half months in senior associate pastor here. Uh, I hail from the lovely Santa Cruz, California, which if you don't know where Santa Cruz, California is, it's right, supposedly right there on the screen, but it's not. There it is. It is that red dot just south of San Jose. Uh, And I have been asked by a number of people, why, if I lived where that red dot was, would I uh, pack up and move to the very bottom corner of that screen uh, to be here with all of you people? Uh, And a big part of that has to do with what I see taking place at the Journey Church. Uh, I, when I was interviewing and talking to the team here, um, I loved what I heard in terms of the cooperative leadership, in terms of the goals of the church, in terms of what this church thought that uh, it could accomplish uh, with the Holy Spirit's blessing and with fidelity to the Word of God. And all of those things made me want to be a part of what is taking place here at the journey. Uh, And I should say as well uh, that I not only thought about that, but I thought about the things, the ministries taking place in the journey, things like Friends for Life, and where I saw, uh, where I saw people who were generally overlooked in our culture and often even in church communities being served and cared for. It's something I see at the heart and soul of Jesus' ministry. Uh, so we packed up, and over the course of three days, my wife and my two boys and I drove from Santa Cruz, California to Tucson, Arizona, so that we could partner with all of you in the work of the ministry here in this city. We're grateful to be here. We're settling in well, so thank you, uh, because that is in large part due to many people here uh, who have either opened their homes or who have checked in with us or who have done the simple task of a few week, uh, last week when I was gone coming over to my house and helping my wife unpack the storage unit uh, with all of our stuff in it. So um, let me say this about what I have already experienced at the journey, not just aspirational, but what I have felt and seen since I've gotten here. If this church embraces those who come in as visitors in the way that my family and I have been embraced, I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will actually see lives transformed. Because we exist in a world And in a time where community is not only necessary because of who we are, but community is necessary because we have seen so much division, so much strife, and so much disconnection through modern technology that when people come to church, they're looking to hear the good news and they're looking for somebody to show them that they are welcome, that they are accepted as they come. Because so many places in this world, you have to put on some shiny exterior to make sure that you don't run afoul of some sacred cow in somebody's ideas. So that is why uh, we have come to the Journey Church. We have come to partner. And that's one of the reasons why even now, only a month and a half in, we are growing in love for this place. And I say all of that full well knowing I have not yet experienced June, July, and August here. So it just, (laughs) okay. Well, this morning, we are going to be continuing our series in 2 Peter. We are looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, open them up there. If you are new to church and new to the Bible, I don't want you to not open it up because you're a little bit intimidated. So when I say 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15, know that 2 Peter, written 2 with the name Peter after it, is in the back of the Bible towards the very end. You can find it in the table of contents. And the 1, the big number 1, is a chapter number, so we're in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. And the little tiny numbers that look like footnotes are verse numbers, so we're looking at verses 12 through 15. So if you would open your Bibles there, and I am going to pray uh, to usher us in. Father in heaven, We gather here this morning for your worship. We have sung, we have already begun to meditate on your word, on your goodness, on your glory. We enter in here during a season of remembrance, and we looked this morning at a text which calls us to remember. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you remind us of who we are in you. 
You remind us of what you have done for us. You remind us of where we are going. And you remind us of how to live in the meantime. For myself, Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart uh, throughout this week as I have prepared the sermon and even now as I begin to deliver it, the meditations of my heart, that the words of my mouth might be honoring and glorifying in your sight and might be edifying to the saints which you have gathered here among us. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities— though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So as we look at this text we see that Peter, is his desire for what he's doing right now is to lock in the qualities that we have talked about over the last couple of weeks into the memory of these saints. Which, by the way, if you haven't, um, if you were missing for any reason a couple of weeks ago when Micah preached, I don't see Micah here, uh, so maybe he's watching online, I... I uh, was gone. I was out of town. I went back and listened to Micah's sermon and was just very edified by what Micah preached when he looked at these things, looked at the qualities that we're about to unpack, and he looked at why they're so important, which we're going to look at again. So I would encourage you to go listen to that again. It's on our podcast. And Micah, there's a camera right there. Micah, if you're watching online, thank you, brother, for your time in the text. Thank you for your meditations and the word the other week. Uh, I am deeply grateful. So, Micah, uh, the other week, reminded us, or told us for the first time, uh, that Peter's goal in writing this letter is to remind people of these qualities, that these lie at the very heart for why this letter was written. And if we were to simplify the section we're looking at today, uh, so you can take what are called primary clauses, the main ideas being communicated, and you take out the secondary clauses, here's what we would see in our text, a simplified version. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, to stir you up by way of reminder. And I will make every effort so that you may be able to recall these things. So that's where I want to focus in this morning. We're going to deal with uh, some of Peter's meditations on where he's at in his own life towards the end. But I want to spend most of our time looking at those two sentences. And so I think we will get a better handle for what Peter's doing here if we look at what we see in terms of Peter's goal for Second Peter for the purpose of this letter, in terms of his heart for pastoral ministry, and ultimately we'll see his perspective, what enables him to have that goal and to have that heart at the end. So starting with Peter's goal. In Peter's goal, we see this. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, to stir you up by way of reminder. So it'll be important to do a quick review of these, but look first at that word always. That implies that the qualities listed in verses 5 through 7, they are universals. There is no time, no season, no stage of life, no cultural context, no sector of society where we get to put those qualities aside. Peter wants to always remind us of them, meaning they are always important to our walk with Jesus. So let's look at them. And I'm going to rewind a little bit to verses to verse 3, so I'm going to read verse 3 and then verses 5 through 7, and we'll look one more time at those qualities before moving on. So, 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Verses 5 through 7, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, your godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. There's no period in there, so you have to read it really fast like that, or else it doesn't make sense. So the logic here of 1 Peter goes like this. Because God has granted you all things for life and godliness— 
which means, by the way, that he has granted you all things to live a life pleasing to him, that's godliness, and all things to internally motivate your desires towards satisfaction, towards significance, that's life, because he has done those things, which, by the way, implies that you have faith. Notice verse 5, to supplement your faith. He's not saying, go get faith. He's not saying, drum up some faith. You already have faith, so supplement that faith. So, this implies that you have faith, which, by the way, means if you're unfamiliar with it, or maybe you are so familiar with it that you've been inoculated to the word faith, and you can't really wrap your mind around what the Bible is saying when it talks about faith. Faith means trust. That's trust in Jesus. Primarily, trust that Jesus justifies you before a righteous and holy God when you have nothing in and of yourself to justify you. That's trust in Jesus that he will hold you up no matter what happens, like the chair underneath you holds you up right now. Did you think about it before you sat down, or did you just trust, this will hold me? That's trust that in Jesus and in Jesus alone, he can take the desires, the wills, the intentions, the things that God placed deep in the core of your being, he can reorient them, reorder them, and direct them away from fallen human desires into the reason why God put those in there, directing them into the kingdom of God. That kind of trust is what Peter's talking about when he says faith. And so, he has given you all things for life and godliness, implies that you have faith, therefore here is how you should live. Here is what you are to pursue. Virtue or moral excellence, a manner of life worthy of the gospel, as Paul will write in Philippians 1.27. Followed by knowledge or understanding, insight and wisdom. Not just generally, but specifically about the things of God. See, knowledge is extremely important, as we've already looked at. Jim has unpacked a couple of different ways in which knowledge is used in the letter of 2 Peter. And so let me say this practically. The reason why knowledge is important is you cannot love that which you do not know. You must know something about God in order to love him. It's why, by the way, when people become innovators in terms of their theology, they come up with new things, the thing they're generally changing is actually a characteristic of God, which should make us wonder, how well do we love God if we are innovators in our theology? We have to ground our beliefs, ground our understanding of God here in the scriptures. When we deviate from this, we deviate from who God is. When we deviate from who God is, we do not love God. Knowledge and love are tied together. God made Adam, then he made Eve. And what does it say when Adam met Eve? It says Adam knew Eve. Tying love and knowledge together. And I understand that some in here might think, well, I'm not a theologian. One of the guys I've spent the most time with since I've gotten here is Matt Fry, who I have come uh, to count as a friend and whom I grow in love with every time I get to hang out with him. And Matt has said to me on a number of occasions, well, I'm not the theologian, so take this with a grain of salt. And then he usually gives his input on something taking place here. Uh, First of all, that's not true. Matt's back there. Matt, you are a theologian, and hopefully we will make you a better one as time goes on. Uh, But theology and theology books need not be daunting or intimidating. This little guy, Knowledge of the Holy, written by A.W. Tozer, is one of my favorite theological books. Slim and accessible, right? Uh, We have a few copies of this, by the way, out there for sale pretty cheap, as, uh, as cheap as we could get them. But let me give you a taste of Tozer. The message of this book does not grow out of these times, but is appropriate to them. It is called forth by the condition which, it is, uh, which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to a loss of the concept of the majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of the thinking and worshiping men. 
This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, without her knowledge, and her very unawareness makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is cause for a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come further a loss of religious awe and consciousness of divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in the adorning silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate and experience life in the spirit. The words, be still. And know that I am God mean next to nothing in the self-confident, bustling worshiper of the middle period of the 20th century. Tozer wrote that, by the way, in 1961. How much more so since the advent of the technologies which we grapple with today? There's so much more to say, but uh, I have to remember my sermon is not about verses 5 through 7. So let's quickly move on. Uh, Peter moves on to say, we need self-control. And another way of thinking about self-control is orderliness. Not, mind you, cleanliness. Things can look clean when you sweep everything under the bed, right? Well, that's not what he means. He means orderliness in the sense of things are ordered the way in which God intended them. And so you have control over your life. Not a hardened grasp that won't let God intervene, that won't let God speak in, but you have control over the desires and the passions which drive our world. So we need self-control. We need orderliness. We need it in our works, in our vocations. We need it in our parenting and in our marriage. We need it in our sexuality, in our romance. We need it in our finances or our business strategies. We could ask ourselves, is our, are our lives in order? Steadfastness comes next, or perseverance in another translation. Can you handle the hardship of the Christian life? You know, this has changed substantially era to era. There was a time, I once heard a popular pastor say, when Christians feared the raised fist. Now I fear Christians simply fear the raised eyebrow. Are we willing... To be steadfast and endure as culture looks at us quizzically, curiously, contemptuously. When we stand up for what we believe, when we voice what we think scripture teaches, when we follow Jesus, when everybody else goes the opposite direction. Are we willing to undergo that? Godliness, does your life display proper reverence for God? For the life Christ lived on your behalf and for your benefit. Brotherly affection. Do you love the church? And not, mind you, just as an institution which you may show up at on Sunday morning, but as a gathering of people. And not just a gathering of any generic set of people, but if you're at the journey, a gathering of these specific people. That guy, that guy, her, him. Do you love the church? Because that's what brotherly affection is that we love our brothers and sisters in the faith. And he concludes by mentioning love, a self-sacrificing Christ-like love your neighbor and give your life for your enemy kind of love. You know, while I'm thinking about it, just to rewind back to that brotherly affection thing, uh, on January, if you're not a part of the Journey Church, if you're new here, January 5th and January 12th, we have our Trailhead 2 class. It's a membership class. Uh, if you have experienced the Journey Church, you like what you've experienced, you feel like something's happening here that you want to be a part of, make efforts to be at that meeting, uh, to learn about who we are, what we do, what we believe, and how we are seeking to disciple each other into greater intimacy in relationship with Jesus Christ. So those are the qualities which Peter wants to stir us up in. And as I said, they are universals, which means you don't get a pass on godliness because you're in college. 
You don't get to do away with self-control because you've aged to the point where you get the, you've earned the right to speak your mind. You know, in culture, sometimes we laugh off things. Boys will be boys, or that's just my crazy old grandpa. Now, you can be a boy, rambunctious, and all the energy that comes with it. Honey, if you're watching at home, I'm sorry. She's home alone with two of our children uh, right now. So you can be a boy, rambunctious and energetic, and you can be a quirky, eccentric grandparent, but you know what you don't get to be? Disobedient. And so we hang on to these qualities. We pursue these qualities. We run after these qualities. And I don't mean to be heavy-handed. I don't mean my first uh, sermon to seem like I'm drumming you over the head with who you have to be and how you don't measure up. But the reason why these are so important, Peter has already explained to us. 2 Peter 1.8 For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is crucial. The Bible's emphasis on remembering who we are, on remembering what God has commanded us, on remembering who God is, is littered throughout Scripture. In fact, over 200 times in the Bible are God's people told to remember something or commanded to remember something, encouraged to remember something, exhorted to remember something. Here's just a few examples. Deuteronomy 6, uh, 12. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's a part of me that wants to say, let us take care lest we forget that the Lord brought us out of slavery, not to the Egyptians, but to sin. Deuteronomy 9, 7, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Similarly, let us remember the effects of our sin. Let us see them. Let us recall them, not so that we can shame ourselves, but so that we remember that the way in which God designed us to live is good for us and for our neighbors. Such that if we remember the effects of our sin, we will resist more wholeheartedly, knowing as well the cause of our righteousness. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. I'm skipping about 150 references in the Old Testament now. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, which implies you remember what he commanded you, but get this, behold, which carries the weight of and remember. Not just see, but recall with your mind, behold, I am with you. Always the end of the age. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, church, that you have a hope and it is not found here in the world. Revelation 3, 3, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and I will not, and you will not know at the hour I come, or what hour I will come against you. He's speaking there to a church which he is saying has forgotten its first love and is in danger of its lampstand, the life of the church, being put out. Let us not forget our first love. You know, we see all of these reminders, and again, I could have read, I could have pulled from any of the 200. Why are they there? Why did God command us to remember more frequently than nearly anything else in the scriptures? He did so because we are spiritual amnesiacs. We forget so easily. makes me think of my uh, grandmother on my father's side, British, uh, and she struggled with Alzheimer's dementia towards the end of her life. Having conversations with her was like watching somebody reach into the mist, hoping to grab a hold of something. 
and yet not being able to grab onto something solid because her memory slipped. Her memory faded. Her memory, her mind betrayed her in those moments. We are like that. When we simply think about and immerse ourselves in the day-to-day of this world, of this reality, When we're tempted, we reach into the mist to hope to grab onto something. But if we have not done the work necessary to help us remember, we will find there is nothing solid to grab onto. Church, let us remember. Let us think about the things which encourage and exhort and drive us to memory. Let us think about how we can bury things deep in our hearts such that when we reach out, wondering who we are, wondering what we are for, wondering where we are going, there is something solid to grasp onto. I think these questions are so important They were also important to the life of Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's John 13, 1 through 5. It's written about Jesus on his last night with his disciples. It's Passover. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them, or who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, he arose from supper, he laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel, he tied it about his waist. He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and wipe them with the towel about his waist. I think in this passage, John is telling us what remained in Jesus' mind that enabled him to undergo both the shameful act of washing somebody's feet in the first century, as well as what will come at the end of this evening, at the end of the beating, and at the end of the story with his very crucifixion. What did John think helped motivate Jesus to the basin to wash feet and to the cross to save souls? What was it? Look at what Jesus knows. He knew his hour had come. He knew he was not of the world, that he was going to depart the world. He knew he had come from God. He knew he was going back to God. He knew who were his own, and he knew how to love them. He knew the Father had given him all things. This knowledge... It's not mere ideas, mere thoughts, beliefs. It's something rock solid. He knew it. And if it was important for Jesus to know it in order to motivate his service for us, how much more is it important that we know it for our service to each other and our love for God? And if I understand Peter correctly, I think this goal of causing us to remember is tied directly to his heart as a pastor. Peter writes this, I will make every effort so that you may be able to recall these things. Notice the make every effort. We looked at this term a few Sundays ago. We've mentioned it a couple of times. Peter has already said, you ought to make this effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness. You've got the list, right? Peter has already done that, and now he says, as you make that effort, I will make this effort. You see, the texture of pastoral ministry is one of work. The analogies Paul gives for pastoral ministry are soldiering, are agriculture, are running a race. I come from a family that has deep military ties. I used to be a cross-country runner, uh, and though I never was a farmer, uh, I come from an equestrian family. And so tied to agriculture, tied to the raising of livestock. I understand the effort and work used in these, but this is strewn not just in, uh, in the writings of Paul, and here it's throughout Scripture. Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to your flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Titus 1.7-9, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And Peter himself in his previous letter, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. You hear the ring of effort, of work, of struggle, of toil in those texts. Pastors and elders in this congregation, this is our calling. To make every effort. That's every effort to know, I think. Because we cannot serve unless we know. We cannot rightly pray for our congregation unless we know. I struggle to preach the sermon because I do not yet know you as well as I would like. In fact, let me say this. Journey Church. I do not know you as well as Peter knows this congregation. And I do not yet love you as well as Peter loves those who read this letter. But here's what I can promise you. My ministry, my time here will be one of encouraging you to make every effort in your pursuit of God. To not let hindrances, roadblocks, and speed bumps slow down your running after Christ. And here's what I can promise you. As you make those efforts, when you look, you will see me making every effort alongside you. And that is the best I can offer you. And as we do that, I believe I will come to know you. And we will grow in love for each other, such that our love, when God is done with us, will reflect what is here in this text. Journey Church, make every effort alongside me. Elders, make every effort to encourage this flock to run after God. I think we also see Peter's heart in this letter, and in this passage in particular, because it reminds me actually of another passage in Scripture. We don't have time to read it, but it's in 1 Kings, the very beginning. When an elderly David calls to him his son Solomon to give him final instructions because David knows his time is at end and Solomon will rise to become the true king of Israel. And so he instructs Solomon one final time and this passage has that ring to it. An older brother in the faith or a father's concern with what will happen when he's gone. That fundamentally is the concern for legacy. But one of the things I note here is that nothing in 2 Peter that I have read or studied has the legacy concern that connects it to what Peter has done. Peter is not saying, remember, I will make every effort because without that, who will remember me? Without that, what I have done will come to nothing. No, instead, this letter drips with Concern for the legacy of Christ. Peter is saying, remember these things, for by them Christ is glorified. Peter is concerned with legacy after his death, but it is not his own. And that's actually where we get into Peter's perspective on this whole thing. You know, we live in a world in which we are frequently trying to escape the reminder that we are mortal. 
We have shelved and moved over cemeteries. We as a culture have grown more comfortable with burning our dead. I think that's simply because you can put them in ashes on a nice vase and put them on your mantelpiece and you don't ever have to think about the fact that every single one of us ends up that way. See, we're constantly trying to forget that we are mortal. Where I come from, I already showed you the map, about an hour and a half out of Silicon Valley where I grew up. And I could name a handful of people who have more money than they know what to do with, and so they invest it in figuring out if they can live forever. And yet here we have a lowly fisherman who nonchalantly meanders into talking about his own death. I think he's referencing here, well, let me, let me read the section I'm talking about first, 2 Peter 1, 13 through 14. I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. You know, literally half the words that I was supposed to teach you today are about Peter being aware that he was going to die. Which made me wonder, quite frankly, if Jim was trying to send me a message, a sort of inauspicious first text to preach from. Guy moves from Santa Cruz to Tucson into the lovely desert to contemplate his own mortality. Joking aside, though, Peter is able to think about death because his perspective goes beyond this present world. And what he sees as important is more than what we generally put our value in day to day. You see, we can actually see it in the text. Peter writes to the recipients of the letter that they are established in the truth. Peter's perspective can enable him to be hopeful and even reflective on his death because he knows the truth. And that, by the way, even though it doesn't reflect it in your Bibles, that's truth with a capital T. That's gospel truth, not just generic truth. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ truth. Or, to put it more broadly than just Jesus' life, it's creation, fall, redemption, consummation truth. Peter says, you are established in this ongoing narrative, this ongoing story of what God is doing, and you know what he is doing, you know who he is. I'm confident about that in you. And because you know and are established in the truth, Peter can look to his own death, hopefully, for what the Lord will continue to do. Again, I think about this truth. It's not relative. It's not subjective. It's universal, just like the qualities we were looking at earlier. And that's encouraging to me. In fact, one of the most encouraging things I did this week is I sat in that coffee shop with Janet and looked over several children's ministry curriculums that aren't trying to distract your kids with bells and whistles. They're not trying to say something new or novel that's never been done before. They're simply and clearly attempting to communicate the truth of the gospel for the raising up of the next generation. Because it's the next generation where we find the future of a finite church like ourselves. And I'm encouraged that you don't have to get academic in order to talk about the gospel, but you can share the same gospel that you could look at in a PhD seminar, you can look at in a third grade class. And that exact same truth can be grasped in the exact same way to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. So by the way, if you see Janet, she's not here this morning, but if you see her around next Sunday uh, or throughout the week, uh, thank her, because she has put in a lot of effort into thinking, how can we clearly communicate the gospel to the emerging generation here at Journey? Peter is able to have hope because he recognizes that this church established and knowledgeable in the truth has not been shaken by pagan culture. They know the truth, they're established in it, and so all Peter needs to do when he comes to the writing of this letter is to remind them. 
And that hope gives him a future-oriented perspective. A future-oriented perspective, by the way, that goes beyond his present life. Peter writes, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He's not speaking here. The language does not communicate some sort of foreboding or psychological state of impending doom, some sort of existential experience. It simply communicates that Peter knows his end is coming. And Peter can say with confidence, because he knows he will die soon, that Jesus has made it clear. That's why he knows. Because Jesus told him. This is a reference to the end of the Gospel of John. John, 15, uh, John 21, 15 through 19. It says, when they had breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, where, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and you walked wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. John gives us this little parenthetical explainer about what that means. This was said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Looking into Peter's eyes. Follow me. You see, Peter's reflecting on these words, and he says, Christ has already shown me that I will die. Not only that, what he's shown him is pretty intense. Church tradition says that Peter was taken captive, he was led away, and he was crucified like Christ, except for Peter did not think it fitting that he be crucified in the same way as Christ, so he requested that they turn the cross upside down. That he crucified upside down. Actually, by the way, there's nine different ways which crucifixion can kill you. If you want an interesting conversation, come up and talk to me afterwards. I'll regale you with them. If you take the cross and flip it upside down, actually several of those ways fall away. The death Peter experienced was likely that of acidosis, which is that his blood would have accumulated an acidic content and texture such that it would have felt like acid coursing through his veins with every beat of his heart. What a way to go. What did John say? To glorify God. This is what Peter knows is coming. This is what Christ has communicated to him. And in spite of that, he can say with pretty much nonchalance, I know that the time of putting off my body is coming soon. This is actually a common theme throughout Scripture. I've already saturated you with some, but let me give you some more. 2 Corinthians 5.4 For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Paul says, it is, death is coming and it will unclothe us. Not so that, as Jim has mentioned the Gnostics a number of times, not so that in some Gnostic truth our spirits can be set free, but so that God can give us back a resurrected body like that of Christ, which is more glorious and more enduring than what we exist in now. You may feel and experience pain in your body, maybe arthritis or cancer, disease, decay, You may experience that and Peter or Paul in that text says, this body with all of that will be put off and there is a new and a resurrected tent. We will be further clothed. Philippians 1, 21 through 24, for to, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I shall choose and I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
To die for Paul is far better than to live because death brings him into the presence of his Savior. But he says, to live though is to minister to you. If it was up to me, I don't know what I would choose, life or death. Quite frankly, if you understand Paul's love for his Savior, this speaks volumes about Paul's love for his church. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Loving the appearing of Christ is how we get our eyes set on the kingdom. Which, by the way, this is the season of Advent, a season of remembering, but also a season of forward-looking. We remember that Christ came, but we also remember the forward promise that he will come again. That every tear will be wiped away, all wrongs will be set right by the coming of our King. And Peter has already toyed around with this idea in his thoughts too. 1 Peter 5, 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the sufferings of this life, but little. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. This lowly old fisherman is able to contemplate his death because he knows that death is but a veil which the Christian passes through on the way to glory. On the way to presence with Christ. This is where we began and this is where we are to end. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the day. Where does the Bible end? Heaven meets earth Jerusalem and New Jerusalem combine, and man dwells in the presence of God. That's what we were created for. That's what this whole project is directing us toward. Death is merely a putting off of the body, that the soul or the spirit can be further embodied and further clothed. Peter is able to say these things because he has embraced this truth in Matthew 10, 28-32. Jesus says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me, that's Christ, before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Peter has come to see that there are those coming to kill his body, but his soul will endure. So what's the bottom line of this? What's the point of this whole text? Peter is trying to lock in these qualities. And he's saying essentially this, your grasp of them, which we could say the way in which you live in your life or your ethics, will be directly grounded in your eschatology, your view of how all things are coming to an end. Your eschatology will determine your ethics. Meaning that how you live is about how you perceive things projected out into eternity. You know, often the hustle and bustle of today, like A.W. Tozer talked about, can distract us. And we can forget the simple truth of John 3.16, which we've already heard read this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have what kind of life, church? Everlasting or eternal See, this isn't about just how you live today. This is how you will live for the rest of your existence, which goes off into eternity. 
And so just a few questions, they're printed in your bulletin, but a few things for us to think about. How can we lock in a remembering of these qualities? A remembering of things like who I am in Christ, and therefore how I am to live like Christ. What sorts of things encourage me to remember those? What sorts of things encourage me to forget them? And how can I develop such a resurrection-directed mindset like Peter? Which is a lot like saying, those two questions put together, how can I live tomorrow more eschatologically? How can I live tomorrow preparing for eternity? If I can make one suggestion, regular meditation on the scriptures, and I would say particularly the Psalms. If you can, sing the Psalms, because quite frankly, you are more likely to sing good theology into your heart than I am to teach it into there. It's about how we were wired. Why do you think the biggest book in the Bible is a book of songs? But also pray through them. The Psalms were the prayers of Christ. On the cross, what did Christ say? Eloi, Eloi, lam sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. Christ had the Psalms buried deep in his heart as his daily prayers. And in fact, if you would bow with me in prayer as we close, Psalm 77, 11 through 15 will be up on the screen. And I am just going to pray this for us as the band comes back up. Father in heaven, help us remember your works, your work of salvation in each of our lives and throughout history. Holy Spirit, provoke us to reflection and to meditation on these things. God, you are holy. You stand apart from all creation as creator and sustainer of life. You have worked wonders in the past you work wonders in the future. And each Christian in this room represents your strength to save us from certain death from our sins. You have redeemed your people past, present, and future. Lord, help us to keep this truth ever before us. To put your word ever before us. And to put the reality of the kingdom of heaven ever before us pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior.